Welcome to The Math of You, a podcast about formative media from when we were young. I'm Lucas Brown. On this, our 96th episode, I'll be talking to Neil Powell, DM, podcaster, and producer, about a subject very near to my heart, Beast Wars Transformers. Along the way, we discuss the taxonomy of um, the joys of a bickering friendship between a velociraptor and a rat, and how Beast Wars did the good place before the good place. We'll finish the show with our signature cocktail and let you know how you can become a guest on the map of you. We join this conversation already in progress. So for those who may not know you, why don't you say who you are and what makes you a beautiful and unique snowflake? So I am Neil Powell. It's one of the few times where I haven't had to say that I am DM Neil because I do a lot of internet-based things surrounding Dungeons & Dragons. The podcast that I've been on for years now is the Dungeon Master's Block, and my particular segment that I've added is DMnastics, the gym for Dungeon Masters to work out their minds. I can't say one without the other. That's how taglines work. (laughs) For your listeners, you've had two other people that I work with. You've had them on, and that's Rich Howard and Emily Booza, because I'm the producer for Whelmed, the Young Justice Files. So I try and make sure that they sound as best as I can. And of course, keep everything that doesn't make them sound the best and put that out as a blooper reel because I'm the best kind of monster, as I have told Rich. (laughs) Excellent. What is it about producers for a podcast that already take a lot of work and then doing a whole bunch of other stuff themselves? I have never met someone who is like, yeah, I'm the producer for this one podcast. Never. I think some of it is the different aspects of it. So I've also done some and not necessarily producing i it's probably close to it for encounter roleplay so their tomes and tentacles podcast is an actual play for call of cthulhu so doing that style is very different and i am dead set i am on somebody's list based on my google searches for the different sounds that i've needed um, mm-hmm. mainly geared towards bones breaking and blood dripping and all those <laughs> wonderful Cthulhu things. But it's so different. Whereas Rich and Emily, you're in, I'm so used to them and their discussion style and they're honestly the nuances of their speech that I actually have a one-to-one ratio on editing them now. Um, so if it's an hour of content, I'll be done in basically an hour. As someone who's edited those two, they're actually a pretty easy edit as well. Like totally. they, they've got their rhythms, Rich especially, yeah. I found it was just like, he just kind of sits down and, and then turns it on and there's not a lot of ums and ahs or thinking pauses or anything. So yeah, not to say that your job is not difficult, but you are working with two very talented people. Yes. And it helps because those discussion episodes with them at this point, I've edited and produced I mean, probably close to 100 hours of them. Yeah, it's wild. So then at that point, and it's the weird thing as an editor and producer, I can also see and visually recognize an um 
before <laughs> I hear an um from them. I can just see it coming a mile away. That's the thing. I, I'm sure there's going to be eventually some form of divination or tarot reading based upon the shape of your average um. Yes, I believe it. Yeah, I've told people, like, your um is a fish. Your um is a spaceship. Uh, your um is a hammer from the gods. <laughs> oh, that's so good. I love the idea of looking further into like certain like certain speech elements or even having different people say different things and figuring mm. out like the difference in them based on it. Oh, techno wizardry at its best. I mean, we can even build a taxonomy. You know, there's the thinking, um, there's the I need a breath, um, there's the inbuilt insecurities, um, which I'm guilty of. Yes. There's all different sorts. Oh, the ideology of um. I mean, I, I feel like we could teach a class on it. I'm sure it's out there. <laughs> yeah. If you're my dad, you have the deeply built in cultural the uh, in the middle of a sentence. Ah. So I was going down to the uh, store and I decided I was going to pick up the uh, some cigarettes. And like I visited him back in October and like after not hearing it for a while, you hear it again and you're like, wow. There. Just the things that are culturally built in, you know? Yep. Well, and it's funny you say, you know, that is the one when I get to a place where I am not as confident in the things that I am saying, I will tag, you know, onto the front of it and not mm -hmm. in an easily editable way. It is just, well, you know, I was thinking, oh, and I'm just like, oops, that's yep. going to be fun on the editing room floor. Yeah, and there are some things where you don't realize you say them until you do. And being someone who's come from, like I was originally from Canada and came over to Australia until suddenly one of my coworkers at an old job went, oh, I was watching TV and someone said something and I'm like, that's the Lucas thing. And I'm like, what's the Lucas thing? I don't know what you mean. And apparently the Lucas thing is starting a sentence with, and that's the thing. Oh, yeah, well, see, the you know I didn't know about the you know until Mitch, who is the other person on Dungeon Master's Block, was editing an episode and took a video of me doing it and sent it to me. And now I can never forget. <laughs> Podcasting, it will unlock your hidden insecurities and vocal tics. Yes, every single time. <laughs> All right, Neil, well, let's start with the basics. Whereabouts did you grow up? So growing up, I was in central California, and that is still where I live. I live in the exact same town now 30 years later. Technically, I was born in Texas, but we moved over early enough that central California is where I have called home. There's not a lot here, but getting to anything I would like is only a day trip away. Okay. So like literally, as I always do, when people point out extremely specific parts of the United States, I just type in Central California and it says that it is a subregion of Northern California, which for some reason really tickles me. That is that is amazing. <laughs> we so, don't associate with that Southern California. Where do you find Central California? In Northern California, obviously. Oh, that's awful. So I lived in the Central Valley. And so that spans quite a large range. I mean, if I was at the top, people would definitely consider me in North California. And if I went to the bottom, they would definitely consider me in Southern California. So to keep it <laughs> as confusing as possible. You're in a position to be othered by every other Californian except for yes. those who live in your particular valley. Oh, 100%. <laughs> so living 30 years in the same place, 
I mean, like, you know, listeners to the show know that I moved around lots when I was a kid, like more than once a year for most of my life. Mm -hmm. So the idea of living 30 years in a place where someone you went to kindergarten with will be the person that potentially works at a store you go to or runs a restaurant or something. And this idea that at any point you could have 30 years of history with anyone that you meet seems kind of great, but also kind of terrifying at the same time. Yeah, you bring that up. And that's actually the exact mentality that my wife had, because her father was a professor for universities. So they moved around quite a bit. And to go immediately off of that, the person who runs security at the local Target is someone that I've known since kindergarten. And he and I are still in contact with each other, like are still friends and in contact. And basically everyone from third grade through high school was all the same. I switched schools at third grade, but from third grade out through my senior year of high school was basically the same group of people from my like area that I lived in and then yeah all throughout yeah I can't even imagine that like my girlfriend has lived in Sydney most of her life when her family wasn't living in Japan when it first started so the thing is some of her see there I just said it again the thing is (laughs) but some of her father's friends he met through the diplomatic corps and so they would have known each other when they were overseas and then settled back in Sydney at the same time so I got to watch my son play with my girlfriend's old friend's daughter as both of their fathers were sitting at the table, you know, sharing a whiskey and making fun of each other's football teams. And I was watching this and I'm just like, this is three generations of friendship and I don't know how to deal with this. Yeah, that is. I mean, you say that. And so for a time when we had, again, when we had younger kids, a lot of things we needed help with because they are young children. And they are indeed. We had someone who was mowing our yard. He was mowing my yard. He was mowing the yard of my father, and he was mowing the yard of my grandfather. Oh, my. He just thought that was the best thing on the face of the planet. Every blade of grass has been replaced, but this is still my grandfather's yard. Yes. The yard of Theseus. Yes. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, so I definitely... And it's, of course, as someone experiencing it for that long, it's difficult to see how people could see it from the outside. Because also the town I grew up in at this point is 60,000 people. So it's not large. I also, you know, you think it's it's not so small either. Like it's not like, you know, a thousand people. But it's big enough to, and and a friend of mine in high school had a a name for it where I think he called it like the poof factor or something, where it was the odds that you would go to a place where you don't know anyone and run into someone you know. And then there's the negative poof factor, which is where you would go somewhere with people and the odds are that you would lose track of them in that place Mm, and end up surrounded by strangers. Yeah, it's right in that comfortable zone because I can definitely go throughout a day and not interact with people that I've known for years and years. At the same time, I could definitely go through like running errands and meet people that I've known for 10, 15, 20 years at every place I go. <laughs> yeah, it's it's one of the like Sydney gets gets a bit like that where it, it's a very large city. It is the largest city in Australia. But the places that you go, especially in the inner west, you will almost always run into someone. And if it's not someone that you've worked with, it's someone who is a friend of yours for a bit or a friend of a friend or who briefly dated someone that you knew. Or, yep. And there will be people who I will see repeatedly and I'll go, I know that face from somewhere. And then realize they were just starting in another department of your office just before you left that job. And then it's like, they're probably wondering why that weirdo with the beard has been staring at them for <laughs> three weeks. Yeah, that's normal. <laughs> it's to be expected. <laughs> so growing up in the Valley of Central Northern California... What sort of kid were you? I guess we have to start. I was an only child. 
I am technically an only great grandchild. Okay. So down my dad's side, you know, the weird part is my grandfather was an only child. And then he only had my dad and my uncle. And then my uncle never had kids and my dad only had me. So there was a, a lot of focus, uh, we can definitely say. But at the same time, my parents always made sure that like I had to work for anything I wanted. But it also, I mean, there was just this hyper, hyper focus on me. Man, Christmas never started until I was awake. Because why would it? <laughs> like, there's only one kid here. We we can only watch the joy of this child. So we should probably wait until he's awake to start Christmas. <laughs> and I was going to say, do you feel that that has influenced? Because you've mentioned you're a parent. Because you said you've had a couple of kids, right? Yeah. So I have two. My daughter just turned five and my son's two and a half. And so has there been, uh, I was going to say, it's like sounded cruel as I said it, has there had to be a transference of that particular, right, well, Christmas is no longer about me for the first time. Oh, yeah, definitely, which is totally, totally fine. It is weird. I don't know that I've ever told anyone this, but it is weird sometimes of like not getting a ton of presents at Christmas. At the same time, I don't care because I know I am also a terrible person to buy for because if it's something smaller... I will just buy it for myself. Like that is just a known quantity. So around October, my wife will shout at me about once a week, don't you buy anything? Uh, just to make <laughs> sure that we're clear for Christmas and then continue into March because that's when my birthday is. <laughs> yeah, it gets this weird kind of negotiation around. I'm, I'm kind of the same. Like, you know, if, it, if it's a video game, if it's a book, if it's a movie that's coming out, I will tend to have planned ahead to get it. Yeah. If I really want it, then occasionally it's like, I will think about it and I will be like, you know, kind of like set up this whole Batman gambit where it's like, I will know a thing is coming out. No, I probably won't have the time or energy to play it until say Christmas and it's September, but I know it's coming out like the new Spider-Man game that came out last year. Yeah. I was like, I was so, I was like really excited. I made sure to openly mention around my girlfriend, I'm like this new Spider-Man game looks so cool. I, you know, I don't have time to play it right now, but wow, everyone's really talking about it. Everyone at work is like comparing stories about it. And, you know, people on Twitter are talking, like posting, look how cool it is. And then just, okay, I have set that trap and I will wait. Yes, I like it. <laughs> and then at one point, because it was our anniversary coming up at the end of September, and we hadn't really planned anything because it was kind of a whirlwind month. And then out of nowhere, she was like, you know, because I haven't really spent much money. And I'm like, I know, well, neither have I, but I've gotten you something. She's like, well, how much did you spend? Mm -hmm. And without thinking, I said, $50. And she went, what? You've only spent $50 on our five-year anniversary? And in my head, I'm like, I know it's because I've bought a perpetual calendar with little envelopes that flip over for each number of the day and, and month and stuff. And I've filled it with the Fuji Instax, like little Polaroid pictures uh... of our son for every day. And that's taken me like months to put together. And yeah. if you think about it, it probably took more time in buying up the film and you know, all this stuff. But I just like, I thought about how much did the calendar itself cost me? Oh, $50. So I said that. And then she got really angry. And I said, well, wait, I, I pretty much assumed you were getting me the Spider-Man game for our anniversary. And she went, well, I am, but that's not the point. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, we definitely have those, how much are you spending conversations coupled with, well, we kind of already did this splurge here. Yeah. So just basically just make sure there's something that the other human can unwrap. That That's all. You need something physical. Yeah. yeah. It was funny because we have this run of about, I think it's about five months all up. Until our son was born, we had five months that was all of the occasions of the year, right? Like it would start with our anniversary mm -hmm. and then it would go to Christmas okay. and then it would be my partner's birthday in January and then it would be Valentine's Day 
and then it would be my birthday in March. Yep. So it's like we had this kind of five-month period where you knew that the earlier presents you don't go all out on because you still have to stay the course for another five months and potentially like a couple of more presents in there. And so, yeah, it was always like, okay, I need, it should be something good. But remember, you're going to have to do something big for next time because next time, let's say it's a number that ends in zero for whatever occasion it is. Oh, yeah. That sort of balancing act. But then our son was born in July. Then, you know, Mother's Day in April. And in Australia, Father's Day is in September. So it okay. blew the whole schedule out of whack. It's terrifying how similar my set of occasions will be. So let's take the anniversary and let's put it at the end of this because mm -hmm. so if you start with Christmas and then and you know, and again you'll transition into Valentine's Day. My daughter was born on the 17th of February. My birthday is March 18th. My wife's birthday and our anniversary is on the 31st and my son was also born in July. So we live the same life in very different time zones. <laughs> yeah. And the thing is, this planning led to something because <laughs> on her birthday, which was her 40th birthday. And so I knew I had to do something special. And she would make jokes leading up to it that I, she explained later was something her father used to do when his birthday was coming up. And every time someone would mention a present, he would, you know, put on his big theater voice. And he's like, I tell you, it's got to be big. It's got to be big. And she would say that, and she'd be like, I know my birthday's coming up, and you know, it's got to be big. And every time, like, my little insecure heart would quiver. And I think <laughs> it's proof of my growth as a person that I did not, every time she'd do that, immediately run out and buy another present. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> because, you, oh my God. <laughs> yeah, I was saying, if you don't know the essence behind that joke, that is terrifying. Yeah, and it's like, I know it's her 40th, and I've had plans for three or four weeks at this point. And yeah, there was at one point where it was like, she's like, oh, um, you know, my friend Kat's coming over. We're going to have, we're going to, she's going to bring over some pastries. We're just going to have a chat and some coffee because she wants to see Hero. And I'm like, she's like, you've got a couple of hours if you want to go and do something. And I went, okay. And then she's like, so if you wanted to go out and, you know, get something that was important. And I'm like, oh, fuck. <laughs> just like, I've already got your present. It's already wrapped and hidden in the spare room. And another intangible is already in the envelope. And I'm like, well, I guess I'd better go to the stores to at least try. Yep. Uh -huh. <laughs> and I ended up like wandering around Meyer, which is a big support department store in the city. And just looking around and going, I have no idea what I'm actually looking for. I'm just going to like, oh, look, there's some candles on sale. I'm going to buy a candle and I'm going to leave. Nice. <laughs> and, so, and so I brought home a candle. And then later after her birthday, and I'm like, that candle was a stress candle. I bought that because I was stressed. <laughs> and so what ended up happening is I was like, it was like the day before her birthday. And I had all planned it so because her birthday was on a Wednesday. And she finally on Tuesday night cracked and went, are you doing anything for my birthday? You haven't told me to block out any time. Oh. You haven't told me if we're going out. Like, are we doing something this weekend? Like, are my parents involved? So you, you need to tell me or I'm going to freak out. Yep. <laughs> and so finally, I just said, look, just trust me. You'll have to wait until tomorrow evening. And she's like, not even the morning? I'm like, nope, nope, because I'm on early, so I'll be out of the house before you wake up. Okay. So, yeah, it was like, okay, well, here is an envelope. Tonight, you know, I'm ordering the food that you want. We already talked about what you wanted for your actual birthday dinner. And then tomorrow night, your mom is taking Hero, and so therefore we'll have the night off. He's going to stay at their place. I've already arranged it. We're going to go out to this dinner at this really cool restaurant, and then we're going to go see the Book of Mormon. I've got tickets. Oh, and also here's this bracelet that I got you. And then she's like, I should have trusted you. I'm like, yes, you should have. You made this unnecessarily <laughs> yes, <every> stressful. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, that's perfect. So initially when you wanted to come on the show, I mean, we ummed and odd a little bit about topics. But then you out of nowhere said, 
oh, we can't have it about Beast Wars, can we? And my tiny transforming heart lit up. Yes. Because, Neil, I love Beast Wars. As you should. A hundred percent. You should and everyone should. And if you don't, there are probably very real reasons, but I won't acknowledge them or listen to them. (laughs) There's no place for those in this show. No. So how did you find Beast Wars? What was your story with it? So when I was, I mean, I think it would be, I can't remember exactly what school age I would be, but I was having to wake up early and I would just turn the TV on. That is how I found it. I just stumbled my way into Beast Wars because basically there were no channels. And so it was really the only channel I could watch that had any content that I wanted. But my most like salient memory of Beast Wars is the time change. They had a programming change and it went to 6 a.m. Oof. I woke up every day early just to watch Beast Wars. I will tell you I have not done that for literally anything else in my entire life preceding (laughs) or like since. Like there is no other time I have woke up intentionally early just to experience something. The many occupations of Neil wishes they had the loyalty that Transformers Beast Wars. You are 100% accurate. <laughs> so that is my initial experience with Beast Wars is finding it as a child and then yeah like I said waking up exponentially earlier than I needed to because I'm a, I was a school age kid I was a boy what do I do put pants on and like <laughs> then go to school That would be crazy talk a yeah. world con topsy turvy Yep So had you been involved in Transformers at all before that or was this all new to you some you know, and a little bit of the old cartoon because you know just through reruns and things like that but in terms of like really getting into the history and experience transformers as a whole beast wars is definitely my first like full immersion into that world which is something that people forget now with kind of the glut of content when it comes to Transformers properties in that, you know, every time there's a new horrific Michael Bay movie, there will suddenly be another Transformers animated show. And for example, there was Transformers animated, there was Transformers Prime, there's now Transformers Robots in Disguise. Well, and then even for kids, Rescue Bots, right? Yeah, yeah, totally. And so there is a lot of content. All of them have, you know, wildly different animation styles and different storytelling. Some are more adult, some are more kiddie. And so there's lots to choose from. But people forget that from the end of G1, which was in the mid to late 80s, mm-hmm. to Beast Wars in 96, there was no Transformers content apart from the occasional comic that you might dig out of a, a dollar bin. Yeah. You know, with those Simon Furman titles and those you know really odd art styles. And I think that's one of the reasons that Beast Wars ended up being so good is because there was no avenue by which to expose people to the legend the lore of transformers that they fall deep deep into it throughout the series especially in the later portion of the show definitely i agree and thing is you get almost a whole first season before there's any type of even hints towards the original stuff and i think that actually works in the show's favor because you get all this character growth and you get to learn these different like the two teams of goodies and baddies and you get to learn all the quirks and there's no and compared to the original show which had a a cast of anywhere from you know a dozen to 30 yeah of any particular episode (laughs) you've got five people on each side when it starts yep and that's enough that you know you really get to know these people before you drop them into the great abyss that is transformers lore yeah 
And if anyone hears our voices and is motivated to watch the show, one of the things that I know, and I will preface, the CGI in 1996 and the budget that they clearly had for it in the first seasons is some real hot garbage. (laughs) Especially compared to if you take, let's say you take the first episode and you compare it to the last episode. Oh my God. It is pure insanity. The level of difference between those two. Especially the background work. The background work in the original few episodes is some of the worst CGI I've ever seen. But Yeah, anytime they have to throw a rock or like have something fall down a cliff or something like that, it's just, yes. it's real bad. Oh, it's so bad. Oh, and when anything breaks apart, it's just like, look at these random squares fly away from the original random square. <laughs> yeah, and it's like being the right age for it. Previous to this, I had watched some reboot and even occasionally yep. the Johnny Quest reboot that they would have go into the VR world every now and again. Yeah. So there was definitely a progression, especially within reboot when you go to the later seasons of that, yeah. where just the money is better. And so they have the time to accurate. And plus, it's an emerging field. So it's not just, oh, we have a bigger budget. It's that we're learning how to do this. Yeah. You know? Both Reboot and Beast Wars have a thing where in the later seasons, they'll have episodes set on the water because they're like, look, we can animate water now. Yeah, when you have Rampage show up. And Death Charge, yep. yeah. Yeah. And being like, oh, yeah, we can have this set entirely underwater and have our models have weight and movement and realistic water effects as they come out of it. Yeah, like we had mentioned that the later seasons are what I really, really enjoy. Like you said, the first season is amazing because it sets up these characters and the later seasons, though, the death of Dinobot, I think, is probably the first time I cried during some form of media. It's extremely powerful. Yeah, that entire episode. If you watch nothing else, watch that episode. You don't even need the context. It's that good. If you do have the context, though, you get to learn that, oh, by the way, this was sort of a a noble demon, an honorable bad guy who had joined up with a group of real chaotic evil bad guys and found them distasteful. And so switched sides because he wanted to win and eventually found that his inbuilt sort of Klingon sense of honor fit in with the rest of the good guy group you know, with some bumps and knocks along the way. And he finally distances himself from the good guy group thinking, all right, I need to change this. I need to actually stop this fight. He finds a way where he can, and he goes out saving a group of innocents who can't fight back, quoting Hamlet. Yes. Set with a a sunset behind him. I am a warrior. The battle be joined. And you cut to commercial, and every kid watching that went, oh my God, he's going to die. And then when he he jumps, and he's like holding the thing that like makes him fall slower. Oh, there's so Mm -hmm. much. Oh comes in guns blazing and just like single-handedly like mercs every single one of the baddies one at a time and ends up facing Megatron with no weapons, no energy, and barely able to stand. And he says, oh, you know, what's a warrior without his weapons? And he looks up and he says, a warrior still. And he improvises a stone axe and beats the shit out of the most terrifying character on that show. It's, it's awesome. (laughs) Yeah. So talking a little bit about sort of the character evolution of this, is that you've got sort of your usual mix of, you know, your, your five characters, you get your five-man band. But in honesty, like, none of them are sort of single-shade flat characters, or at least they don't end up that way. Oh, yeah. The character evolution in this series, for some, some definitely kind of stay pretty close to what they start out as. Mostly the villains. Yeah, <laughs> totally. But yeah, if you look, especially at 
Optimus and Cheetor, like their evolution through the series is insane to me. Or even someone like the one I keep always come back to is you look at Retrap and Retrap is there to be the snarky comic relief. He's the smallest of them. Yep. He makes, you know, jokes, making fun of everybody. He seems to have no loyalties to him. And by the end of it, he is the most like personally loyal character compared to any of the others, with the exception of maybe Optimus. Yeah. In that if he's in your party, he's your rogue. No question. But it's that Slytherin, my heart is a walled garden thing. If you do mess with his people, you'll be going home in a box. Oh, yeah. And I mean, especially from the... So I started rewatching some of the first episodes to like get my mind back in that space. I forgot how terrible he is in the... Oh, he's such a jerk. In the first one, he's just like, yeah, hey, Optimus, you suck. And I'm not going to listen to a damn thing you say. I'm out. Yeah. It's like, oh, yeah, you want me to give you cover fire? F off, fool. And it's just like... Yeah, I'll shoot what I want when I want. Yeah, like I'm not sticking my neck out for anybody. But then by the end of it, like, and thing is, his relationship with Dinobot changes because, of course, he does not trust Dinobot because Dinobot is a Predacon. He is the enemy. Rightfully so. Yep. And so he is, for once, the jerk has a point and he is saying, uh, guys, did, did no one remember that he came from the other side? He never lets anyone forget it. And so they develop this sort of bickering friendship, which I have used as the template to talk about, you know, various story experiences or role-playing experiences and being like, oh, yeah, these are the enemies who become friends. But they never quite stop being enemies. Oh, yeah. It's rough, and they talk so much, like, shit about each other. The whole series, it's so good. There's a particular... And the thing is, when you get towards the end of it and Dinobot leaves the good guy team, you end up with Rattrap being honestly betrayed and being uh, going from fun joking mean to very pointed and cutting mean and it's like hey we kid around you did something really bad here yeah and i'm not going to forgive you and so when dinobot sacrifices himself rattrap is crushed like this he holds his hand as he dies and it's something where you know earlier that episode he is saying you know i knew i always thought i couldn't trust you and now i know it i guess it was my fault for thinking you could be better and oh it's it's bad but then i come back to i was talking to uh, annie creighton who's one of the players on Gem Jammer. Mm-hmm. And she was kind of outlining the arc of one of her characters. And it's like how, oh, these people will fight. But if anyone from outside steps in and insults yeah. one or the other, both will immediately turn on the interloper and tear them to shreds. Yes. There's a great moment in one of the, I think it's the late season two episodes, where Dinobot and Rattrap are dragging an unconscious Tarantulas through a cave, arguing about how stupid this is, and it's yes. the other one's fault that they're in this situation. Yep. And they finally end up dropping him and, and like getting nose to nose. And then you see Tarantulas wake up, yep. pop up with a gun, and they both turn and tell him to shut up and knock him out simultaneously uh, so they can continue their argument. Yep. It's great. I can literally see, like, and that's how, okay, let's let's back up one step. Yeah, yeah. The immediate point at which I could purchase the DVDs, I did purchase the DVDs, like to the point where like I know it was difficult for me to find them and extremely expensive to purchase them. And I did it without a second thought. So like as you're describing it, I can see the scene in my mind. Like that's how much all of this like is stuck in there forever, which is, of course, the only way I would wish it to be. Exactly. Yeah, I I had some that I found in like one of those like mall pop-ups that suddenly has discounted DVDs and you know it's slightly shady. But I found the early ones that had the foil covers. Yep, those yep, those are the ones I have. The tears on the front and stuff with the really odd clearly recorded at a con lead-in stuff from people like Scott McCloud and Gary Chalk and being like you're watching 
Transformers Beast Wars. And it's like, you clearly just stuck a, a GoPro in this poor guy's face and said, here, record a bumper for me. Yep. And then it's from like Rhino Studios or something like that. Those are That's the, the one. Yeah. Those are the ones I have as well. The other scene that like I can see in my head that like really stuck out, and I think it's the later seasons that dipped into like just a lot more mature content as well, was when they find the original ship that had crashed, and when Optimus puts the original Optimus's spark in with his own. Yes, like that transformation scene is still somewhat haunting. Yeah, because just to clarify, again, if people haven't really seen it, the old Transformers are big. You know, when they turn into cars yes. and planes and stuff, they can be quite large. Like Optimus Prime is implied to be like three or four stories tall. He's big, like in the movies. Yeah. The movies actually had to scale him down to make him more relatable. In Beast Wars, all of them have to turn into realistically sized animals without much mass displacement. So with the exception of Rattrap, who is a big rat. Yes. So And, you know, the various ones who turn into insects are big insects. But, you know, Optimus Primal is about the size of a gorilla. Rhinox yeah. is about the size of a rhino. So they can be big, but only big to, say, a human. Compared to an original Transformers, the scale is wildly different. So what happens in a scene where they find the original arc, which, due to the joys of time travel, everyone's still asleep before they yep. wake up to have the original series, the original Optimus Prime gets damaged. And, of course, everyone's like, oh, crap, we just screwed the timeline. And so Optimus Primal says, well, look, I'll hold his spark, which is like a Transformer's soul, in my own body. It's extremely dangerous, but while that's happening, you know, we'll keep him alive, and you can repair his body, and I'll put it back. Well, in that time, having an original Transformer's spark in his body, as well as the spark of a Prime, which anyone who's read Transformers knows that's important, yeah. transforms him into a Generation 1-sized transformer and so he gets like a plane alternate mode and a car alternate mode and he's huge compares to the others but the way it's shot it's terrifying it's like something out of american werewolf in london luckily shot you know with just the silhouettes against the wall because this is still a kid's show yeah but it's implied to be incredibly painful and and scary it was yeah it was insane he turns into optimal optimus which to continue the insanity it purchasing the optimal optimus toy is also the only time i have ever used the layaway program somewhere and so as a small child i put it on layaway at walmart so that i could purchase it and i still have it of course to this day it's also huge it like is it's, it's i'm picturing it it's you know it's like you know 20 inches tall or something when you have the arms up like it's huge and really and thing is a lot of people i keep saying the thing is see now i'm, I'm aware of my own vocal takes and a lot of people will kind of compare old to new and there are lots of divisions within transformers fandom about what toys are better the beast wars toys as a whole were very well designed you yeah. got a proper robot mode and a proper animal mode with every one i mean hey i've had some of those old g1 transformers some of them were you know just barely a robot and a realistic car mm, or yep. just barely some kind of like weapons platform or something and then a realistic robot all of the Beast Wars toys were very well designed, and the Optimal Optimus toy was no exception. Yeah, it was, I mean, yeah, it's insane how large it is. I was trying to find it online real quick, but I would easily say it's 20 inches or more. It was one of those things where if it came out today, it would get its own toy classification like Mega or Ultra or something, and, you know, be price pointed in Australia, at least at somewhere around $150. Yeah. But the way that, for example, the Titans Return Fortress Maximus is, whenever I walk past that, like on my lunch break or something, and I'm like, that's a $200 Transformer. But then again, it is over two feet tall. Eh, it makes sense. I wouldn't even know where to put it in my house. <laughs> yes. Where could I hide it so my wife doesn't see it and ask about it? 
and murder me. Yes. <laughs> be like, this toy has more mass than our son. Yes. Who is a toddler. I had several other toys, but that was the one that like I definitely held on to and definitely stuck with me as just like the absolute pinnacle of buying Beast Wars things. Totally. So thinking back to the show, because you mentioned like you kind of hooked on from like the minute you saw it because it was on in the mornings. But was there a moment where you were watching it where you went, no, this is it. This is the one for me. I think it was the end of season one when Optimus sacrifices himself. It is a habit of people named Optimus, but it was still very good. Yes. And then it's, you know, and it was just like, as a kid, it's like, whoa, what, what, then what happens next? I mean, I, all of my emotional investment here, like he's, he's dead. Like, what do we do next? And then that transition into everything that happens in season two and like just the elevation of both the quality of CGI, first and foremost, and the quality of the story and everything else, I think is like it was that season finale of season one that really, really hooked me in. Yeah. To give a little more context, what happens is that throughout the whole of season one, you would occasionally get these episodes where the prehistoric earth that they're on, which yeah. they had always had suspected it was prehistoric earth, but it was only confirmed, I think it's like late in season two. Yeah. But everyone is there, but there's no people. There's just animals. And so they're looking around and they keep finding these structures. Like they find like a Stonehenge yep. and they find like a floating island that has anti-weaponry technology on it. And all these weird things that are all kind of organic, but also clearly technologically advanced, even for our technologically advanced main characters. And so at the end, it turns out that there's two moons. And so that's why they think, okay, it's not Earth. Obviously, there's two moons. Look at it. And they find out that that's no moon. That is, in fact, a <laughs> planet killer weapon. Yep. When that happens, the shell of the moon is burned away. And it's basically a whole moon full of guns pointed down. And so Optimus gets in a stasis pod and they rig a rocket to it with the idea that he is going to fly up and then hopefully bail out and get away before it blows up. That doesn't happen. Nope. Because Megatron has screwed with the controls. He ends up stuck in there. And though it blows up, what then happens is this wave hits the planet and essentially cooks it. Yeah. You get to see all of the familiar locations that you have from the whole first season just be just demolished and destroyed. The Predacon ship takes a massive hit and two of the characters fall into lava never to be seen again. Mm -hmm. The season ends on this note of, well, now what do we do? It's that good place thing of blowing up your premise, you know? Well, yeah, and you, I mean, because you had, you had one of the other reasons they were there, and it was the planet of pure awesome, was it was also the planet of pure Energon, which then is very volatile. And so when you cook the planet, everything gets a little extra blown up. So, and of course, what you find in the second season is that it didn't just cook the planet, the specialness of the wave transformed some of the characters who weren't shielded anyway not yes, all of them that's right into new transmetal forms so they all look different and they all have third modes and pushed a little bit by the fact that now mainframe can do nice reflective metal surfaces they're all shiny and chrome yep and so you get this escalation which gee whiz also gets you a new toy line what i know right you would never imagine that a show like this is made to sell toys but yeah, it's made to sell toys. Then you get, again, character evolution. How do you adapt to the fact that you thought you knew how you looked and suddenly you're incredibly different against your will? Rattrap gets wheels, so he's not you know, scampering along after the others. Oh, that's right. And Cheetor yep. can fly now. So you get this escalation. Of course, new characters arrive, and it's a way of saying, all right, we now have this built-in point of escalation. How has that changed our characters? Where do we go from here? Yep. You definitely have some 
interesting continued kind of storyline with the who did all of these things and what are these aliens and I mean just so much escalation like you had said because all of the pods that could turn into new characters start falling to earth where it's just this weird arms race you know that was a really fun element in the other seasons as well yeah because I think we only got one each uh no sorry two each of the stasis pods in in the first season yeah two for the good guys one for the bad and every time one lands it's a race because if the bad guys get there first that will be a predacon they will add a shell program that will turn whatever that new transformer is into an evil one they will overwrite them and they will be chaotic evil coming out yes but if they get there if the maximals get there first you will have you know i hate this expression but you will have a natural birth of this mechanical yes. transformer yes they will be allowed to choose for themselves and you get a character like tigatron who comes out with no one to influence him and so comes the closest we see to a neutral character yeah even though he is a maximal he stays apart from the others he's mostly a pacifist he stays in the arctic with the other tigers and so kind of lives this solitary life until he is forced by events to join with the good guys. Yep. And finds his companion in Air Razor. Yeah, who is the the other new one who is, I think I talked about this with Kit Walker when she was on the show, who is the girl one. Yeah. Thank God. And is a Prairie and Falcon, which Kid Lucas was very excited about because Prairie and Falcons rule. Yes. Then they disappear together and then they come back also as a single form and it was very interesting. Yes. It, again, to sell toys. Yes. But occasionally it leads to some nice narrative stuff. Yes. Oh. And talking about deep cuts, and I'm sorry, I'm just going to push up my glasses and uh, tighten my, my bow tie for oh, a moment. Oh, get it. The Vok, who are, is the name that is given for the aliens, eventually show up in late season three. And they're sort of like, I can only describe them as like technological skull ghosts. Mm-hmm. Like they can possess things and they can control stuff, but they are essentially energy beings. We talked about how the show will skillfully work in sort of deep cuts from the original continuity. The Vok are basically, and again, this is such a, a stupid deep cut, but the end of the Generation 2 comics in, I think it was the late 80s or early 90s, there was a thing called the Swarm. And the Swarm was this great all-devouring literal like swarm of fire, and it would consume anything it touched. And the only way to defeat it was, of course, Optimus Prime allowing the Matrix to be consumed and allowing that knowledge to then purify the swarm and you turn it into energy and move on. Stop being a force of destruction and becoming a force of creation. Again, very biblical. So then it's implied, it's never mentioned on the show, but the writers said, okay, well, the Vok are the sufficiently advanced form of the Matrix and the swarm and another race that they found that is, doesn't exist in any continuity who has now decided to come back and try to fix things. Some of them get caught corrupted and now they're angry their experiment is being meddled with by robots from the future. It's like, none of that is on the screen. <laughs> but clearly, there were some very emphatic nerds in that writer's room yeah. who were like, no. And they're slapping these comics down on the page and say, see, look, this is what happens. This is how we get here. Uh, yeah, I feel like there had to be a ton of conversations once the show had been picked up for more seasons. They're like, no, no, the gloves are off. We'll, we'll do, we will shoehorn and put anything we can possibly think of into these next two seasons. Yeah, what's that? They find the Ark? Cool. All right. Well, now they're going to find the Nemesis, which was the original Decepticon ship that crashed in the very first episode of the original Transformers show. Yes. We're going to have Ravage come back. 
you know, Ravage, the little panther from the first series, except he is going to be a Russian sleeper agent. Yes. <laughs> that three-part series, The Agenda, is again, that's another finale that just ramps things up and blows up the premise and both bases end up destroyed. And you have Ravage, who is a first-generation Transformer, yep. but looks like all the others because he's been reformatted, transform into his tape mode to control his ship yes. with the old-school Transformers noise. And, ugh! That's it. 100% what I was going to mention was like, and he turns into a tape. Because I had that... <laughs> well, actually, I had a very broken Ravage that I got at the yard sale, but I had the the other little tapes, and they would fit into your Soundwave or Blaster toys. <sighs> and to see that, oh, he's this new character, and he has a new voice and everything... But he still turns into a tape yep. because, hey, fans, we see you. We love you. Yes. Oh, yeah, I think and that's the other thing is you're in learning more about Transformers, I think, definitely helps rewatching just be as magical as before, because now you know, with more knowledge going back to the show, those smaller things just feel so much bigger with the context. Yeah. And I mean, even little throwaway things like Rattrap swearing by his great aunt R.C., in a very Ben Grimm sort of way. Yeah. And then going, wait, R.C., I know who R.C. is. Oh, so good. Oh. Yeah. And then it all leads to Beast Machines, which we won't talk about. No, we won't, which was a great leap forward in animation, but a huge step down in terms of story and characterization. Yeah. They reached too far. Things got muddled. They got canceled early. Everything got rushed. It was their reach out seat of their grasp. That's all I can say. Yeah. And it, yeah, we're not going to get bogged down. We're staying positive. Yep. So if you had to nominate, I mean, we talked about a couple of great episodes and a couple of great moments, but if someone walked up to you today and said, you know, hey, what's your favorite Beast Wars episode and why? What would you pick? I'd still have to go with the the death of Dinobot. Um, I don't... Code of Hero is the episode. That's got to be the one just because it is, it's paying off so much leading up to that point and then you know, and the echoes out of that the ramifications continue through the story so for me i think that's probably the absolute top for me with that episode it's not just a personal story of dinobot being a hero and dying a hero because like you said it pays off so much because in the very first episode the reason megatron and his buddies are on the run is because they stole something called a golden disc mm-hmm a golden disc after two and a bit seasons of it being this MacGuffin where, oh, this is why they came and it has some coordinates on it that will lead to, and will match to some of these structures. And, you know, it's this sort of MacGuffin that has been protected and never quite explained why. And then they just out and out say it. It's the record from the Voyager probe. It's the golden record yep. that was included with knowledge of human history. And when the moon was destroyed, Megatron then knew all right, I thought I'd gone off course, but no, I hit the right planet as well. This is prehistoric Earth. Yeah. Like he shows a picture of a mountain and then has one of his goons destroy the mountain and watches the picture change yep. and goes, okay, timeline is mutable. Let's get cracking. Yeah. Oh, that, yeah, that scene too of just when the picture changes and you're in just a, a little Neil just saying, oh no. Yep. And they won't create a splinter timeline. Nope. It won't change one thing and never again. Time is a river. And so they decide to start throwing rocks in that river. And they find the valley where the human race began as sort of little Australopithecus people. Yep. And they decide, we're going to nuke it. No more people? Problem solved. Yep. Problem solved. And so the magnitude of that in a kid's cartoon. By the time I was watching this, I was like a mid-teenager. Mm. And even then being like, oh, oh, this is big. Yeah. And it takes a catalyst that big 
to force the change from Dinobot that he can't be. He has to re-involve himself and he needs to stop this. This has become bigger than any of them. Talk about a ramping up and escalation of goals. Yeah, so good. (laughs) All right, well, I was going to say we've talked about Beast Wars for a significant period of time. And if we haven't convinced you yet, just go watch it. Yeah. And I mean, I think it would be very easy for if people haven't listened to the Gameable podcast that uh, Chris runs, where they take Saturday morning cartoons and they essentially retrofit it into an RPG setting. There's a great series on the Ninja Turtles that I would recommend to anybody who's a fan of that show. I could easily go in through character archetypes and escalation of story and just talk for ages about this show. Yes, all day long. Literally, that's what I'm stopping myself from is just being able to pick each character and pick them apart and why they are so good. Rhinox is my guy. (gasps) We are kindred spirits. All right, Neil. So if people wanted to find your stuff on the internet, where would they go? Best place is head over to Twitter where you can find my handle at Jotmoniac. That's Jack of all trades, master of none, IAC. And honestly, that's the best place. Of course, for the podcast I mentioned at DMS underscore block for Dungeon Masters block and at the YJ files for Whelmed the Young Justice files. Fantastic. So thanks so much for coming on. I got to release my inner Beast Wars fan and it's been very cathartic to do so. Yes, and in the infamous words of another favorite of my characters, Waspinator had plans. <laughs> uh, see, again, we could just yep. we could just perfect Waspinator, but I can't. I gotta go. Anyway, <laughs> thank you so much for coming on the show, Neil. No, thank you. Thank you very much to Neil Powell for his time. When I asked Neil for a signature cocktail that would be an inspiration for his drink, he recommended the Stockholm Royale, which is a martini variant, although he requested something a little bit less sweet than that. I completely understand. The Stockholm Royale is a mix of vodka and triple sec and Chambord black raspberry liqueur and sweet and sour mix and champagne and it's got a sugar rim. So while it's a very nice drink, sweet doesn't begin to cover it. I've done a little bit of reduction work and added a touch of refinement to come up with the depth charge. In a shaker of ice, combine two and a half ounces of vodka, half an ounce of dry vermouth, and three quarters of an ounce of Chambord. Shake vigorously until the outside of the vessel frost over and strain into a champagne flute. Take a twist of orange peel and twist it over the drink, making sure to rub it along the edge of the glass. Top up with brewed champagne. Still sweet and brightly colored, but with a Transmetal 2 kick. Maximize at your own risk. Enjoy. I'm not a
The Math of You is recorded in Leichhardt, New South Wales, Australia, and is written, hosted, and edited by yours truly, Lucas Brown. New episodes are released every second Wednesday, and though I'll still be releasing the bonus episodes when I have the content, I've kind of run out of my back catalogue of pre- and post-show conversation, so I'll have to wait until I build that back up again. And if you'd like to be a guest on the show, simply send an email to themathofyou at gmail.com and tell us what you'd like to talk about. You can follow the show on Twitter at The Math of You, and you can follow my wacky adventures at Lokified, L-O-K-I-F-I-E-D, on Twitter and Instagram. If you have a few dollars kicking around and would like to directly support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash Lokified and pledge as little as a dollar a month. Or you can pledge as much as you want. You, honestly, you could buy me a new laptop. It would really impress me. Or you could do like Annie Creighton did, and here it was my birthday, and just buy me into the Spider-Verse. That was really nice of you, Annie. It made my day. Patrons get physical mail, bonus cocktail recipes, and I would just really appreciate it a whole bunch. If you'd like to support non-monetarily, you can go to Apple Podcasts in the country of your choice and leave a five-star rating. It helps people find the show. Or you can leave a review, and I'll read it out. Won't that be nice? If you like the music I play on the show, there's a Spotify playlist for that. You can go to bit.ly slash themathofyou with capitals at the beginning of each word to find a Spotify playlist going all the way back to episode one with every song I've ever used in an episode, including this one. It is, of course, Bulls on Parade by Rage Against the Machine. I'm really dipping into that late 90s, early aughts, angry young person vibe this episode. I update the playlist as soon as the episode goes live, so make sure you subscribe and get the new music in your ears. Next time, I'll be talking to one half of Two Bossy Dames, Sophie Brookover, about FM radio and the magazines that shaped our tastes. Join me, won't you? Cool. So, I gotta say, from the brief look at the Google Hangout, you're one of the few people where I see a drawn avatar that happens to look exactly the same as the person. Yes, so I have supported for a really long time an artist who did the Axe Cup webcomic. Oh, no way. And like I've supported him for a long time and like through his Patreon, through just in general. And he, I think there was some sort of family thing going on that he was looking for support. And if you supported and sent the receipt, then he would draw an avatar for you. So I've had that same avatar for years because of that. And luckily, you've also apparently had the same beard for years. Yes, I have had it for much longer than my wife appreciates, but she said she liked it at one point, and I've held on to that. I'm in that same trap, actually. Because yeah. <laughs> the thing is, it's like, because looking at it, because when some people draw beards, they either draw them as, like, you know, pencil lines on a face, or occasionally as this, like, impenetrable mass below a chin. But you actually do have that dense of a beard. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I love that. I mean, I, I stopped shaving my head because my kids got a little bit older, so I had more time to manage more hair. That's how I viewed it. I basically it's a very said, real going concern. Yes. I said, I've only got so much hair to manage, and so I shaved my head for about like two or three years, just myself. Oh, so you did it yourself. That's the, the thing where it's like the very brief time that I had like, you know, like a number two crew cut. I felt like I could do it myself, but I would always do such a botched job of it. I would have to get help to do the back. Oh, I, would, yeah. I would finally just be like, I will pay $10 and go to a neighborhood place and just like clean me up. 
you know? Yeah, now I pay a lot more and go to an actual salon. My thing was, because after my son was born, he's 20 months now, initially for a while I had no time outside of sort of work hours to go for a haircut. And so every three months or so, I would just go to a place in my lunch break. And because I only had like a very short period of time, I'd be like, all right, just shave the sides in the back and trim my beard. And that's it. Don't worry about the top. Which led to me eventually having like a little like top knot at the back of my head yeah. because eventually if you stop saying tidy up the top, it will get long enough that you'll have to then tie it out of your face. Oh, that's awesome! And it was only like a couple of weeks ago that I finally went into a proper barber shop and went, "All right, you know, give me the Brad Pitt from Fury," and he's like, "You sure? That's a lot off the length." And I'm like, "Hey, man, I trust you. You look like a trustworthy guy." <laughs> and this like six foot four man with a beard and a shaved head and massive gold rings on every finger said. Well, no one's ever said that to me before. <laughs> and I <Yeah>. went, okay. <laughs> You're like, okay, well, maybe I don't. Um... <laughs> but no, he did a really good job. I like my new hair. But oh, it's awesome. the thing with the beard, though, about your wife liking it is because I had had, like, you know, a terrible goatee when I was, you know, in my mid-20s, as mm-hmm. a lot of people do. But I'd been clean-shaven for a while, except for, you know, longer than usual sideburns, which is something that just happens. Yeah. I have to, you know, occasionally stop it from, you know, looking like the 10th Doctor. But it's one of those things where it's like, I had just been dating my partner and the mother of my child for about a couple of weeks. And then she's like, have you ever thought about growing a beard? And I went, oh, you know, I had a goatee when I was younger. And then I, for a while, I did solidarity with a friend who was like, oh, I'm growing a beard before I shave it off for charity things. So I did that for like two weeks and I was ready to kill myself. And then she said, oh, I think you'd look good with a beard. You know what you should do? You should grow it out and you should send me daily progress pictures. Oh, nice. And me having been dating this girl for a month was like, she wants to see pictures of me every day. Yep. This is a good sign. So I knew I had a birthday in like four months. So I'm like, well, you know, I'll keep it on until my birthday and I'll decide. So now it's five years later (laughs) and I still have a beard. But you haven't had a birthday party. No, (laughs) that's why it's it's still there. It was one of those ones where, yeah, I was going in on my birthday. I'm like, I'll get a haircut. And if I'm sick of the beard, I'll get him to shave it off as well. But then it was just like, no, I like it. Let's just have a trim and stay. So one of the things you said reminded me, like, I've had it long enough that it was kind of, it was like, I had it a little bit before it was, like, ubiquitous. Like, people just had beards. So oftentimes the number one question I would get from people was, why are you growing it out? And I didn't, I, I never knew what to do. Like, because? And I'm like, I know that's not really a sufficient answer in a social setting with a stranger so i just started lying to people (laughs) and my number one lie because you had said you did it in solidarity with a friend and i said oh well yeah i'm growing it out so that i can cut it and donate it to beards for bros it's for people that can't grow their own beards they're like really and i'll say no not really i just like it like also beards aren't like hair in that way you can't really do that yeah so i would tell people that it was for beards for bros so there you go Hashtag Beards for Bros. Support yep. everyone. <laughs> like, follow, and subscribe. Yes. Smash that share button. No, it's because it's just like, yeah, people will ask you, and it's like, it's very simple. Because I've never really enjoyed shaving, because I have curly hair, mm-hmm. and I get, like, these awful ingrown hairs at, like, the bottom of my neck. And that, like, I've had that since I was, like, a teenager, and it just sucks. So when I started growing out my beard, people ask me, oh, so why don't you shave it off? I'm like, well, I could either make a decision that would require about half an hour's labor, and then, like daily to every three days labor for the rest of my life yes or i could do nothing and let this inertia ball just keep rolling downhill mm-hmm. i know what i'm gonna choose just about every time yep inertia wins again <laughs>
take that Sisyphus. That's awesome.